Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Here's part two of my interview with Robert Swan. Robert, when we left off at the end of the previous episode, you had just reached the South Pole, only to find out that your ship was gone. What a moment of simultaneous achievement and loss. Well, it wasn't anybody's fault. Uh, It was Antarctica can play some pretty cruel tricks on you and it was just the ship went down and that was it but our our difficulty at this stage was that we'd made a promise that our patrons for this expedition incredibly were captain scott's son sir peter scott who had launched and founded the worldwide fund for nature the panda organization he was the founder of that Uh, Lord Shackleton, the son of Sir Ernest Shackleton, was one of our patrons. And Jacques Cousteau, you know, the founder of the environmental movement, he was our patron. And all three of these pretty tough guys had said to me, Rob, we will support you if you leave Antarctica with just your footsteps in the snow. And that meant that we would have to clear all of our rubbish, all of our garbage. Roger Gareth and I had even carried our garbage on our sledges to the South Pole um, as a gesture towards delivering on that commitment. Suddenly, I've lost my ship. I'm bankrupt because you can't insure a ship that far south. And I um, hocked the ship. I don't know how you say it in American, but I promised... Uh, my bank that I would sell the ship when we got home to pay my debts. No ship, you can't insure one there. So I become bankrupt, I lose my house, I lose all my money. I've got 25 people standing after having lost a ship. I've got three of us standing at the South Pole. I'd made all these commitments to take away that 60 tons of equipment that we'd had for a year on the edge of Antarctica. And I realized on that day that we make leadership complicated. 
it's actually not that complicated. I think leadership, in my own humble opinion, is to think carefully before you make a commitment in life. Think carefully. Once you make a commitment, do it. So incredibly, I had the most incredible team. I asked for three volunteers. And the first person to volunteer, think about this, Keith, think about it. Listeners, think about it. That Gareth Woods, remember our logistics genius, the guy that had put our whole base camp together for a year with all of the logistics. He just spent a year in Antarctica. He just walked to the South Pole and he volunteered to spend another year at our base camp. No one's ever paid on our expeditions. He would be there two years of his life and he stayed because he was the only person that knew how to run our base. Two um, volunteers joined him from our ship and they would spend another year in Antarctica. Why? Because if you leave a base in Antarctica, if you don't have somebody there to maintain it, it will blow apart and put rubbish and garbage all over um, Antarctica. So they stayed there to look after our base. Uh, at this stage, we were helped hugely by the US Navy, God bless them, that a couple of the pilots said, look, just jump on the back of our plane. We'll deal with any problems of people complaining, but we'll get you back to New Zealand, which they did. And so a year after losing our ship, um, I would head south again, pick up Gareth and his two brave companions, and leave Antarctica, as we promised, clean and tidy to deliver on our word to the sponsors. All sounds good, but what with the debt of losing our ship and the debt that it costs to go and collect the team and clean up Antarctica, I ended up with a debt at the age of 29 of $2 million in personal debt, and I'd never had a job. And it took years to repay it, but it was worth it. And that was the end of the South Pole expedition. We did what we said we were going to do, reach the pole and left Antarctica tidy, of which I'm proud. Pretty soon you have to start facing this crushing debt. Okay, well, basically I thought to myself rather foolishly after the debt of the South Pole that if I walked to the North Pole, I could pay off my debt. Um, I thought, you know, if I raised enough money, I could pay off the debts. And my bank was extremely uh, supportive of me. Most incredible um, bank manager in the history of bank managers. What is that conversation like? Not the easiest conversation, but part of any conversation with banks is they want their debt paid off. So my pitch was I can maybe do it faster if I launch this expedition, which I think my bank manager, Don, kind of thought, well, it's complete nonsense, but let's help Rob get, let's help Rob get to both poles. So, yeah, it was a start. But also the other thing that had happened, which was to change my life, was that walking to the South Pole, something happened to us which really changed everything. Uh, as we walked to the pole, you know, the, the skin on our faces burnt away, uh, ripped off. Uh, our eyes were really badly damaged. My eyes actually changed color in 70 days through damage. 
And we didn't know that we were actually walking under the recently discovered hole in the ozone layer. In fact, the hole in the ozone layer was discovered the very month that we were walking to the South Pole. So when we got back with blisters in our eyes, our faces all ripped off, it was a bit of a shock to hear that this man-made thing, the hole in the ozone layer, uh, we'd experienced it. So part of going to the North Pole began a new quest, a new effort, which was to say, hang on a minute, if I had been helped so many times by so many people, maybe I should involve and inspire young people uh, on our expeditions. Uh, and we had 22 young people from 16 different nations who would be at our base camp while we walked to the North Pole. And actually, as I speak, it's the 30th uh, anniversary coming up very quickly of that North Pole uh, expedition and the involvement of the young people. So uh, things had changed, um, but at the same time, I, I was talking myself really into even more trouble, especially financially. But when I look back, so what really? Uh, you know, I, I don't know any money now. I may not have got very much money now, but who cares? So North Pole was game on, and the North Pole would be a whole, whole different uh, experience than walking to the South Pole. It's a different place. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot and the Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Why was the challenge different? The North Pole is a frozen ocean of ice. It's an ocean. The South Pole is ice up to 16,000 feet thick that you're walking across. So the North Pole is like starting here underneath the Golden Gate Bridge on ice and walking 700 miles towards Australia in the middle of an ocean. And this ocean is moving. The ice is very jumbled. It's, it's, you've got to walk across. It's a bit similar to walking across a car park for 700 miles and every time you've got to go down one between two cars then up the next side up that up and down up and down it's it's not as far as the south pole it's warmer than the south pole once you get going but it's physically very very demanding not so isolating uh 
but a whole different physical challenge. This time we had eight of us from seven different nations. This again was me trying in rather a modest way to see some of the issues that we face uh, about our survival on Earth. Uh, it's a global issue, not a local one. It's certainly not a British one. So uh, I had eight from seven different nations, and uh, we would launch right from the northern tip of Canada, 700 miles through to the North Pole itself. But about 100 miles out from the North Pole, life was again going to change radically. Every step you take is away from the safety of land, ice on land. You're in the middle of an ocean, and beneath your feet, you might have 10 feet of ice, you might have a foot of ice, six inches of ice, but below that is five miles of ocean. And when we were 100 miles out from the pole, the temperature radically, literally in a week, went from really quite cold to almost plus temperatures, plus 33, 34, 35, and the entire ocean beneath our feet began to break up and eventually did break up. So we're left on reasonably large pieces of ice, but in between those sections of ice, there was just open water. And you've got to remember, it's too far for helicopters. No planes could land. Nobody kind of knew where we are. And the ice had never broken up at that time of the year. We were facing conditions in April, which was supposed to happen every year in August. So words like climate change, global warming, environment, sustainability, none of those words were invented, but it started us in a very serious way, thinking like, what the hell is happening here? Why is this happening? We all nearly died, but we came through by sheer guts and persistence uh, and marching up to 40 hours in a day to keep going across this ice that was breaking up. Huge battle, but it left an absolute indelible print on my head that we are, as a planet, in a survival situation. You know, I'm not, Keith, a, 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 an explorer. Scott Shackleton and Amundsen were explorers. I'm not a scientist, I'm sadly too stupid. And I'm certainly not an environmentalist, I don't even like the word. And I'm not an activist, I don't even like that word. But I'm damn good at staying alive. I'm a good survivor. And when you've seen what I've seen at the South Pole, holes in the ozone layer, the North Pole, ice caps melting four months before they ever had, 30 years ago, you kind of take those issues reasonably seriously and it starts you thinking about what could I do in my own small way to help our survival here on earth because a survivor does not see an issue that could be a threat and do nothing about it a survivor acts to do something about a possible threat so it doesn't become a threat and this was life-changing stuff as we closed in on the North Pole. You were facing the possibility of death on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, this, 
you don't take any, you know, life jackets. And you know, if you fall into that ocean, yeah, you might get out, but you could be sucked under the ice. I mean, it was just the most appalling, again, not really thinking about it, because if you thought about it, you literally couldn't take another step. But when you're walking across ice that is just skiing across it is bouncing up and down, every step you're taking is bouncing. It, it, it's quite a hectic moment in life, um, definitely. But again, we had a belief that we could, we could make it, and we did. Eight of us from Seven Nations reached the North Pole after 56 days of battle. And I did become, on that day, the first person in history to walk to both poles, but I hadn't done it on my own. We'd done it. You know, Roger and Gareth and the whole team had got me to the South Pole. Incredible people like Dr. Misha Malakoff, hero of the Soviet Union, who'd led us through that terrible ice conditions. You know, we'd done it. We'd made that dream a reality. And, you know, I did have my rather pointless line in the Guinness Book of Records. Yeah, we'd done that. But a new picture was now starting to emerge in my life. That, that, yeah, we'd done all that. Fine, great. I'd realized that being somebody meant nothing, that you would, you know, have an article written in the newspapers and you read it the next day and it was nothing that you'd said. I'd realized the pointlessness of short-term fading fame. It didn't mean anything. Uh, what mattered to me was a whole new picture that was starting to emerge about why we'd done it and what could we do with having done it. But at the moment you achieved this remarkable feat, how did that feel? It felt pretty damn good, actually, because I remember I called over the uh, one of my best friends still, uh, Dr. Misha Malakoff, the Soviet doctor. Interestingly enough, he'd started to the North Pole as a Russian, sorry, as a Soviet, and he'd arrived at the North Pole as a Russian, which was quite interesting. This was the whole time of the Berlin Wall and everything going down. But I called over Misha and I said, uh, Misha, give me your knife. And being a Russian, of course, he had everything in order and he gave me his knife and I got the knife and I cut the traces that I'd pulled the sledge to the North Pole. I cut them and I said, right, Misha, that's it. I am never, ever, ever, ever going to pull a sledge to any damn pole again in my life. Job done, game over. So it was a good moment to know that we'd done it and I'd never have to do it again, or so I thought. We had made those two incredible journeys that no one had ever done. And let's not forget that, you know, part of me standing at the North Pole, and there'd been a, quite a lot of people from Norway who'd been sniffing around the idea of becoming uh, the first to ski or walk to both poles, but I'd beat them. So one of the things I remember punching the air at the North Pole is that I had leveled the score. It was Captain Scott won, Amundsen won, and I had beaten the Norwegians really at their own game. And, you know, they don't like that much because you know, I'm not really a very good skier. I'm not really an explorer, but, um, and they are the best. There's no questions that 
the Norwegians are the finest polar travellers and always will be. So uh, it was a great moment to have gone, Captain Scott, we did our best. Your story inspired us. And I've levelled the score with those Norwegians after 80 odd years. So it was a great moment for that as well. One of the members of your team, Mr. Anishi, experienced some trauma that demonstrated uh, the risks that you were all taking. Yeah, well, we had huge battles. I mean, our, our, um, start with our American, um, Daryl Roberts, Daryl E. Roberts. Um, he had not realized that he was getting frostbite in his heel. And about 110 clicks out from the pole, his heel dropped off his foot, literally just dropped off in the tent one morning when he took his sock off. So he had no heel. Um, Hiroshi Onishi from Japan uh, was battling very, very hard with um, just physically not being as probably as big as we were. Uh, he was battling not only physically, but also psychologically because my Japanese isn't very good and his English isn't that good. And English was the common language for us all. So he was struggling. Uh, Daryl you know, with no heel in huge pain. You know, we were, we were, we were hanging on in there those last hundred miles to the pole, but we held it together and we'd done it. And Hiroshi would recover. Sadly, he'd die about a year later in an avalanche somewhere in the Himalayas. And Daryl had part of his backside, his bottom put on his heel and coming from uh, the Bronx in New York City, we always had and still do have fun saying to himself, Daryl, have you kicked your own ass recently? Um, <laughs> so everybody was fine, but there were huge costs physically. You know, my back would never be the same again after walking to both poles. And, you know, I, I even then felt that my hips had been smashed to pieces. Yeah, physically and mentally, we'd taken it pretty much to the edge, but we'd done it. Yet around this time, you moved your base to the United States. Why? Well, I felt that um, you know immediately after walking to both poles, uh, we, you know, psychologically, I took a fair hit. You know, I I was in a lot of pain. I found that I was drinking too much. You know, in those days, people didn't have sort of the knowledge of post-traumatic stress syndrome, all those things that we now know about. And I think that I, I used to kind of drink too much to kind of dull the pain in my head and my body. And, but Jacques Cousteau was the person that came to rescue me uh, because he said, right, Rob, it's time to get serious now. And I thought, well, I thought I just had been quite serious walking to both poles, but he gave me, a 50-year mission, uh, 28 years ago now, where the Antarctic, which we'd walked across and had a great deal of respect for, inspired by a lot of great men to try and look after it. He said, right, Rob, in the year 2041, this was given to me in 1991, this mission. He said, in the year 2041, Rob, the treaty that protects Antarctica right now, we all own it. No one owns Antarctica. It's the last true great wilderness left on Earth. He said, Rob, make sure we have the sense in the year 2041 to leave Antarctica alone. 
as a natural reserve land for science and peace. And I've been working on that mission ever since for 28 years and with renewed energy and purpose. I haven't had a drop to drink now for 25 years, so I managed to get rid of that burden. And uh, we've been working on that mission uh, ever since reaching the pole. And I had that new mission given by Jacques Cousteau. And that gave me, you know, often to succeed in something is, is, is harder to succeed in something than actually trying to succeed in something. If you spent all of your life, ever since you were 11 until you were 33, just focused on getting to the South and North Poles, once you've done it, there's a bit of a damn hole in your soul. You don't know what to do. But Jacques Cousteau filled that hole by giving me the 2041 mission to make sure we preserve Antarctica. And that has filled my life for 28 years. And we've got another 22 years on that mission to go. And we'll do it. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What was tougher, getting to the polls or quitting drinking? I think for a time, it was quitting drinking because I felt that I was losing control. I never felt I was losing control of my life, even though I might die. I still had control, but with alcohol and drugs and those things, it, it creeps up on you. You don't really want to accept that this is pulling you down. In fact, people who have these problems, as I did, uh, are very good at making excuses as to why they've still got control, but they don't. And I think when I realized that this was pulling me down, I realized that I had a bit of a fight on my hands, but it was a fight that I could only do myself. And by that stage, I was married, I had uh, my son Barney, and I didn't do it for him, I had to do it for me. And literally, being me, I just did it in one evening. But it took a hell of a long time to get to that moment of just saying, right, that's it. I'm never gonna drink anything ever again, ever. And I never have. But it took a lot to get there, so it was a damn hard moment to realize that I wasn't stronger as I had been. I kept going to both poles and managed to survive. But if I didn't stop this, it would be bigger than me. So I'm very proud of having done that. And um, it was a great moment in my life to say enough's enough. And I don't regret it. I have no, no problems in other people drinking. It's just not part of my life anymore. And I'm glad of that. Did you ever consider getting a regular job? Not really, no. I mean, once you start start doing this, and it, it, it's a good way of introducing my son, really, that it, 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 once you start on this life, which my son now is very much involved, and he's actually a hell of a lot better than I am, but once you start, there is actually no turning back. You can't go and suddenly work with KPMG or 
get a corporate job. Who the hell's going to employ somebody like me? Uh, so you have to make a living out of doing this. And that was one of the great moments in my life. I mean, some of the listeners might remember, uh, they probably might remember a, a famous actress, uh, she's still alive, Haley Mills. Well, her father was an extremely brilliant English actor called Sir John Mills. And he had acted in that film, Scott of the Antarctic, that had inspired me, a film made in 1949 starring John Mills. Um, you can actually get it on uh, iTunes or something. Um, and he, he had inspired me, and I went to him after both polls and said, look, Johnny, I owe all this money. How the hell am I going to pay it off? And he said, well, I'll teach you how to speak in public. And he gave me, which was pretty cool, some amazing uh, lessons in public speaking. And I trained and I practiced and... I now have to make a living. Obviously, you have to make a living and pay your bills and all those things. And um, I do that through being a public speaker. And that's how I've kept the living going. And I suppose that's the most normal thing I do as a job. But I felt very much that coming to live in the United States, which I really like, I love your country. I'm actually really, really proud to have a green card, which was a huge battle to get, but I'm really proud to have it. And I, I love being here in this country, and I'll tell you why. Is that A, it's a fantastic place, full of opportunity, and I'm not a political person in any way at all. I don't, really don't care who's the president, you know, commander in chief, you know, you get good ones, you get bad ones, I'll say no more. But this is a, still really a land of opportunity. And most importantly for me and for my son, that people are not cynical about the sorts of things that we do. So if I go in to see people in the great US of A and say, hey, we've got to walk to the South Pole on renewable energy, the first thing they say is, great, can we help? Whereas in Europe or in my country right now, People just say, well, you know, is it the right thing to do? And, you know, haven't people done this before? You know, cynical. I hate cynical. So I came to live in the United States, having been a person that's been too cold in my life, and I have been too cold. I chose to come and live in sunny California, uh, which is fantastic, lots of sun. And I really love living in this country. It's great. And people have really responded to the various things that we're trying to do, like preserve Antarctica and uh, help with renewable energy in our world. Uh, it, it's great. And I, I, I think that people who live in the United States, should those people who think it's a bad country to live in, they should all go and live in India for, for a weekend and then come back here. Because we're very, very, very lucky to have all the privileges and opportunities that we have uh, in the United States of America. And I'm proud to be part of your country. What is it about America that enables people like you to chase big dreams? It's, it's to do with freedom. You know, America is a big country. Barney, my son, has done, I bought him 
uh, an old Subaru car that was older than him. And Barney's done something like 150,000 miles in that car uh, because he's a mountaineer and he likes, you know, and he's only been to places in California, Nevada, um, Washington, Oregon, and I think uh, possibly Utah or somewhere. And he said, Dad, you know, I've done all these miles. I've been to all these places and I've only been to five states. I think that people in this country who know where they are think big because this is one hell of a big country. It's a big place. And I think also that although people criticize it and say it's all wrong and get all wrapped up in the wrong stuff, I think if you work hard here, and you have a good dream, it's still a place of opportunity and, and, and making, I know it sounds a bit corny, but the American dream is not dead. If you believe and you're willing to work really hard. And I, I think I proved that actually uh, by coming to the, to the US of A. And I think the USA is, I'm sorry to be possibly a bit rude, but I think the USA has got to remember to lead. I come from what used to be the British Empire, which did never have the sun set on the British Empire. It was the most powerful force on earth. And right now, we're nothing. We're just an island, a bunch of losers that have just left Europe. I mean, what the hell are we on? But we used to be great. And this country, America, is forgetting how to lead. and. The sad thing is, is you are actually the leaders of the world right now. So one of the reasons that I'm in California, that I'm in the United States of America, is I do believe that the United States can still lead us on some issues, especially to do with energy, renewable energy, all that brilliant technology that comes out of America um, can be used globally to make sure that we're doing a better job looking after our planet. I do believe that. I think America's still got a hell of a lot to offer uh, our world globally. Tell me about your training these days. Well, my son Barney and I live in um, a little town called Auburn, um, the base of the Sierra Mountains. And we don't really like cold weather, uh, but last year we were in big training for our attempted 600-mile journey to the South Pole, uh, only on renewable energy. Another reason we're in California is that um, <clears throat> we work with NASA, who help us very much with some of the brilliant new technology that they helped us with these incredible ice melters. They're like a giant vacuum flask that takes the sun through solar power and melts water. One day they'll use these things on Mars, incredible. So we were training really, really hard last year. Obviously, when you get to my age, you shouldn't really be running marathons because you'll knock the hell out of your knees and your back. So we've done a lot of cycling high up, 10,000 feet above sea level, good training, um, pulling rubber tires, which is really irritating, uh, on your back, pulling them up trails, wearing a harness like you would wear walking to the South Pole. So the training is intense, but what I'm learning step by step uh, through my son Barney is to do much more 
stretching than I ever have. And uh, we did all of that for my last expedition with my son, but very sadly, halfway to the pole out of those 600 miles we were trying, uh, my hip literally disintegrated. Uh, I could hear it grinding because the silence in Antarctica is true silence. And I had to stop. And Barney carried on to the pole, uh, made the first ever renewable energy expedition to the pole. Fantastic for him. He had his own story. Clearly, your son is following in your footsteps. How did that happen? And did you try to discourage him? Well, my mother, who is going to be 104 in October, 103 right now, she gave me some very good advice uh, as far as Barney was concerned. He said, she said, Rob, it's going to be hard being your son. So do not ask Barney to be anything like you. Don't push him into being like you, because if you do, he won't be. Maybe one day he'll want to be and follow in your footsteps and take on all the things you've done and make it even better. So I never, all I said to Barney as a dad was, as long as you're honest, as long as you try hard, you have my 100% support. And if you're bottom of the class or top of the class, I don't care. As long as you try hard, that's it. Be what you want to be. And about five years ago, when he was just short of 20, he came to me and said, Dad, I I want to do what you're doing. But being a rude chap, he said, uh, I want to do it better than you've done it. And that was music to my ears. Uh, he's truly a mountaineer, Keith. He's not like me. Um, he's, you know, he's very connected with wildlife. He's got his own really strong mission called the Climate Force Challenge, which is his deal. I support him where he's saying that his generation, remember those young people on their phones, We talked about them earlier. He wants to inspire them to make changes. You know, we've all heard about the inconvenient truth in life, but that's, we can't afford just to have inconvenient truths anymore. What we must have are convenient solutions. What's the most important thing you've learned from Barney? uh, Barney calls me the Terminator and not, for good reasons, he, you know, he, he, I am endlessly relentless. I am a person that's never been particularly happy ever in my life because I've always been on the mission. I've always been pushing too hard on the mission. And what I've learned from Barney is possibly that I must learn to stop. Otherwise, I'm going to wake up one day very old, about to die, and say, well, what the hell was the point in all of that? Was I ever happy? So Barney's helping his father learn to stop, look out the window, and not be so damn restless, and actually possibly to enjoy my life while I've still got a life. That's what I'm learning from him. And what he's learning from me is that occasionally, You must be the most relentless, fearsome person ever in the history of fearsome people and relentless people to make things happen. 
So that's a great trade-off between our two characters. Do you think all of this was your attempt to fill up some void in your life? Yes, possibly. Um, I'm not too sure whether it was a void. Um, That would be too complicated for somebody like me. No, I think it was a... You asked a very good question earlier, which is worthy of possibly a better response, is that when when you've done these things, what does it really feel like to walk to both poles or do some of this thing? Well, the rest of life after you've done something like that is you look at it and it's, it, it's not that complicated. But it, 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 if you've done that and you've achieved that, anything is truly possible. And I think this is one of the reasons that so many incredible veterans, women and men who've fought for this country, my country, uh, on very worthwhile missions, find it very, very hard to reintegrate to life. Because I was lucky. I was given a mission by Jacques Cousteau saying, right, get off your ass backside, Rob. You, you've got a 50-year mission to help save Antarctica. And I went, right, okay, I'll do it. And I've been on it for 28 years. Now, what would have happened to me if I hadn't had that mission? Because if you know that things aren't actually that complicated and that truly anything in life is possible, but you can't find a mission or something makes sense in your life, that can create huge frustration. I suffered with that a little bit through drinking too much for a few years, but I was lucky I I had a mission. And I think that one of the big confusions that no one ever talks about is that if you've achieved, not in my case, but a little bit great things, or you've been out in the battlefields and faced war and incredibly big things, coming back, it's, it's all rather easy, but confusing if you can't find a mission. That's something I really learned um, after, do- after being lucky enough to have done the things that we've done. There's going to come a time when you're going to have to stop. You'll have to leave this mission to the next generation. What is that going to do to you psychologically? I can't wait. I actually can't wait. And actually, I'm going to look forward to that. I really am, because imagine what it's like to be my age, but still be in the ring. It hurts like hell. It doesn't mean I can walk to the pole without any pain. Of course, it's going to hurt. My back's messed up. My, most of my body's messed up, the knee, I mean, everything. But I'm still in the ring. So I'm really looking forward to some stage, you know, being the trainer on the outside of the ring. And maybe that could be Barney for a while. It could be other young people. But I look forward to being out of the ring. Thanks to Elaine McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. 
You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American Achiever.